Shalom and welcome to another in our series of podcasts from Temple Beth Am, a dynamic center for conservative Judaism in Los Angeles. This is a recording of a Shabbat teaching by Rabbi Rebecca Schatz. This Parsha, Vezot HaBracha, which we're going to learn a little bit about today, is the last Parsha of the Torah, but it's very rarely read a lot, right? There are some years where it's probably only read twice. I'm not great at math, so that might be wrong, but I'm pretty sure that that at minimum it's read once, obviously, but, but I think it can be read up to three times, like this year where it's being read this Shabbat afternoon, next Shabbat afternoon, and then we also read it on Simchat Torah as the conclusion before we read Brayshit. Um, but there are some years where the, the the Torah reading days don't line up in such a way that we would even read it that many times. So it's definitely a Parsha that we do not read on Shabbat. So no one can say, I had my, well, I guess if they had a, they had a bar bat mitzvah on Simchat Torah, maybe they could say this, but they definitely didn't have a Shabbat bar bat mitzvah um, and read Vizot Habracha as their Parsha. And it's a really interesting thing that there are some years that we also don't read Brayshit on Shabbat, just depending on um, depending on how the cycle works out. This year happens to be a Shabbat where we do, um, I mean, a year that we do. But it's it is interesting that the first parsha and the last parsha of our Torah don't get as much. I don't I don't know like. Um, yeah, props. <laughs> As the rest of our parsha, you would think that the beginning of the end of a quote book, right, would get, if not more, at least the same amount of honor of kavod as as props um, as as the other as the other parshiot, as the other sections of our Torah. So I always like to teach on vezot habracha because I feel like if we're not going to read it that much, we should at least learn about it. We should at least know what's going on in it. Um, so we're going to take a look at the last three verses of the Parsha and then the first verse of Brashit as a way of kind of connecting connecting the two. Um, oh, sorry. Do you, do you guys have two sheets? Okay, great. Um, if you don't, I have more up here. Okay, so this is not how I like to teach, but because we have people on Zoom, I'm going to do all the all the reading, but people should feel free to ask questions, raise your hand, etc. Um, but I'm gonna I'm gonna read the actual verses. So okay, Deuteronomy 34:10 says, "Velo kam navi od beIsrael kemoshe," and there didn't arise another prophet like in Israel like Moshe. So after Moshe's time, there was never again a prophet like him who rose. Uh, in Israel, Asher Yado Yedaos, excuse me, Hashem Panim El Panim, who God knew face to face. I recognize that the translation is who God singled out face to face, but Yedao is that He knew Him, right? That He like that He had some kind of um, intimate knowledge of Him, not just His name. He wasn't just an acquaintance, but He actually knew Him intimately. And then it it's kind of um, uh duplicated in saying panim el panim right that's just it's it's a way of saying that yet again that not only was this an intimate relationship where god really knew moshe but they also knew each other um face to face which was not a, the type of relationship that god had with other people in our torah so what are some questions that you have just about this verse that there was not another prophet that rose in israel like moshe a person who knew God intimately face to face, or who God knew face to face. Yeah, Irv. You know, I saw that. that yeah. 
what, what, the why of what though? Why, why, why is this person? Ah. Yeah, great. So why, first of all, why does it need to say that? And then also what's, what's the factual need behind knowing that there was not a prophet who lived like Moshe ever again for Israel? You want to answer your own question? Okay. 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 So maybe he was a freedom fighter. And so there was no one else like him who who rose to be a leader of Israel. That's an, that is definitely an interesting answer. Other questions? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, oh, interesting. So maybe the need changed because as Jason said, there wasn't, there was no more slavery. They had left that world. So now they didn't actually need a leader like Moshe had been to, to lead the people because they're in a different situation. Yeah. Very interesting. I hadn't thought about that. Marshall. Right. Right. Great. Great. And this is also saying never again, right? So if we read the Torah linearly, which scholars of Torah don't, but if we were to read the, the Torah linearly, we would think of Abraham as coming before Moshe, even though what we're actually supposed to do, and we, we show that we illustrate this um, in ritual on Simcha Torah, is that we actually end the Torah by then beginning the Torah, right? We, we make sure that there is no end and no beginning. But as Marshall pointed out, wasn't Avraham also a prophet? But if he didn't live at the time of Israel, maybe there is something specific about Moshe being really the prophet for the people of Israel. Do you want to follow up? Yeah. 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 That's Stephanie. You want me to bring it to you? Can you mute them? Yeah. So, Ode, right. So, what Marshall is saying is that here there is, there is this word Ode that comes after the word Navi, right? Ode be Israel. So, that there had been yet um, could be a translation, or that there hadn't, there, there wouldn't be another one, right? Ode is like, um, is additive, right? That there wouldn't be again, or there wouldn't be another. Um, yeah, I think you could definitely drush it to mean that there that there hadn't been yet, for sure. Um, yeah, yeah, right, right. So, so it is it is possible that all the Torah is saying very simply, though. I'm not trying to say that what Herb's statement was was a simple one, but just very kind of shot the 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 basic understanding of this could just be. There was no other guy like Moshe, right? Moshe was Moshe, Abraham was Abraham, Jacob was Jacob, and there was no other guy like Moshe because Moshe was Moshe. Bob, did you have something to say? No? Okay. Others? Okay, so we're going to go on to the next verse. Just remember, this is three lines before the Torah ends, right? So if someone is reading the Torah linearly, this also isn't super hopeful, Right? That, well, actually, let me take that back. It could be very hopeful or it could be not hopeful at all. Right? It could be very hopeful that we just experienced a, a leadership style and a leadership opportunity like Moshe that cannot be exceeded. Right? He, he did the best job. No one's going to do any better than he does. And the, the pessimistic version of reading that is all right, so like then the people went on after the Torah was written and we were just SOL. <laughs> we had, there was no chance that we were going to be able to do as well as we did in the Torah because there was never again a leader like we had in Moshe. Hold on, Mar uh, Gary has something to say and then Bob. Yeah. What, what, about, what about the Messiah? I mean, essentially, <laughs> Moses was the Messiah of those days, and and hopefully we're going to get we'll have a Messiah that would do what Moses wasn't able to do. 
Mm-hmm. And um, so there's, there's another side of that. Yeah, I don't know that Moshe was ever seen as a messianic type figure. I think that that people who want to see the Messiah as being a leader in the future of a people into a messianic age for, you know, redundancy's sake, um, that that might be similar to what Moshe did in terms of bringing the people into Israel, for sure. Um, yeah, I don't know that we think of the Messiah as a leader, because the Messiah actually isn't necessarily going to do anything that that would lead the people in such a way. The Messiah just brings on a certain type of time, and then everything kind of falls into place. I mean, that at least that's how it's written about, right? We don't, the Messiah isn't necessarily going to then take rank as king or prophet to be able to, to make any of those things happen. Like the, the temple will be built, sacrifices will happen again, et cetera, et cetera. But there isn't any reason for us to believe that the Messiah is the one who makes all of that happen. It's just the, the Messiah is the one who brings it about. Right, right, right. But I don't know that that's that that that's not necessarily like what Moshe did in like leading the people into Israel, though, right? Like it's not like that kind of leadership of kind of like corralling the troops. But yes, for sure, it'll be a person who takes initiative and and does something that that allows the the people to come back together. A hundred percent. Just not necessarily the like shepherd with a staff splitting the sea type leader. Yeah, Bob. The who knows, right? Yeah. <clears throat> yeah, the, the, the Mishnah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. What should be enough? Yeah. Oh, I see what you're saying. Got it. Got it. Why do we, why do we even need another prophet if Moshe did all this work to pass it on to Joshua, who then passed it on to the elders who passed it on, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, that's a really good point. And maybe we don't, right? But, but again, it leaves us wondering then if we're looking, um, not to, not to quote my own Yom Kippur sermon, but, but if we're standing in our present and we're looking at our past, what does that tell us about, about our past, right? What does that tell us about how, how good we had it, and then to move forward, we feel kind of like, well, how are we going to move forward if we know we're not going to have a leader as good as as good as he was, right? But maybe it's because he passed it down. That's definitely definitely possible. Okay, let's just we could clearly spend many minutes on this one verse, but let's get to the other two also. So the, the next verse, the penultimate verse of the Torah, lechol haotot vehamovtim asher shelacho. Hashem la'asopah eretz Mitzrayim. So all the, the reason that that never again did a prophet arise like Moshe is because Moshe had all of these wonders and miracles and um, it says here signs and portents, which are fancier words from what I've already said, um, sent to him by God to do for to do for the people in um, in Egypt. So to do on behalf of God, but in order to affect Pharaoh and all of the slaves and the whole country. Okay. And that's it. Done. Torah over. Okay. That last line, the Yad HaChazaka, the strong hand that Moshe had, which was at what point? This isn't a trick question. Yes, with the Red Sea. Ulechol um, hamora. What is the mora hagadol? 
revelation, right? So receiving the Torah, being in awe of God that, that Moshe did in, it says, Israel, like literally in the eyes of, of Israel, that they were able to see what's happening to Moshe. So what are the categories here that really made, that are, that are qualifying Moshe for being this amazing leader that we're never going to have again? What are the things that he did or that happened to him? Yeah, great. So God told Moshe what to do, right? That's that's pretty important. And back to Marshall's point, that also happened with Abraham. But if we if we look at the documentary hypothesis, which I'm not going to get into so much today, but if we look at that, we believe that Genesis was a very different type of writing of Torah than Deuteronomy. So the fact that in Genesis we had a God that was much more of a personal God, and now we're kind of hearkening back to that kind of God, it is it is interesting. But but what we're seeing here is that Moshe had this relationship with God where God said, okay, I'm going to give you this staff, and you're going to split a sea, or I'm going to give you a Torah, and you're going to give it to all the people. And there was no one else for whom that happened for, right? No one else had that kind of relationship with God. Yeah. 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 <laughs> uh -huh. Yeah. Right. Yeah. That's 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 definitely an interesting comparison. I I think that you could actually say that Abraham, Abraham Lincoln, that Abraham um, didn't actually create the people. Abraham created the nation, right? Moshe created the people because Abraham was the first Jew, right? First rituals, covenant, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. We're about to have all those really great stories. It's my favorite thing when we start the Torah again, because it's like, oh, thank God, a Leviticus. Well, I can wait another few months. Now I'm back in Genesis. It's awesome. Um, but but that narrative that we're about to see is the creation of a of a nation and how to form that nation. Like when you do those projects in first and second grade, like what does it mean to have a nation and you have a flag and you have, you know, a, a flower and an animal and all those kinds of things, right? Like that's what Abraham did. He made sure that there were, there were things to go along with them. But then Moshe actually created the people because he provided them with the Torah. He provided them with the rules. He actually literally took them out of, of slavery to become a people. Yes. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Sure. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. But but again, I I wonder I wonder if it's just semantics. But I. Yeah. Right. 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 Yeah. Oh no 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 definitely not. Right. It's just the introduction to the rest of the story. Right. Abraham had to do what Abraham did, or else Moshe wouldn't have had the people to create the people. Right. It wouldn't be able to go on. Right, right. Oh, very good. So Avraham Avinu, right, Abraham, our father, versus Moshe Rabbeinu, Moshe, our teacher, our rabbi. That is very, very interesting. Right, so the idea that Moshe not only helped us create ourselves into a people, but also was a teacher and was a person who allowed us to understand what it meant um, to to move forward. And Abraham did very important things by by helping us grow up. I love that. Thank you for sharing that. Okay. Yes. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That's a lovely drash. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Nice. That's a, that's a, that is a lovely drash. Um, okay. So Rashi, Rashi writes a commentary on this idea of knowing God face to face. And it says, Shehaya 
sorry, I can't read. Shehayalibo gas bo medaberilav bechol etsherotse. So there's more to the the um, commentary. I just gave you this piece. So it means that he had within his heart a familiarity. Right? There was a familiarity that God and Abraham, uh, Moshe, and I have me talking about Abraham, that God and Moshe had for one another, and he would actually speak with him anytime that he wanted. Right, which we actually know is not true. <laughs> That's not actually how, how it ended up working. But but it is interesting that Rashi reads it that way. Right? That that any time that I guess God spoke to Moshe whenever God wanted to, but not vice versa. But the, but the idea that that there was this type of familiarity, right? Think about how we use communication today. The people who you know, if you pick up your phone and you text them or call them, right? They are going to be the ones to answer you. They are the people who are closest to you because they're going to ex either expect that you are going to be in constant communication with them, or they're like a parent or a sibling or whatever who feel a certain type of responsibility to make sure that, that they, they can give you an answer and they can be um, responsive to you. So that's similar to Moshe and Gad here, right? That they, are, they have this familiarity about one another that they feel like they can be in constant communication. Sfornos is something very interesting that, that is going to probably take us on a little bit of a tangent, but that's okay. Um, Sfornos says... And again, I'm not going to read. Actually, I'm just going to read in English. No other subsequent prophet ever attained the lofty spiritual stature of Moshe. Okay, so now he's making it a spiritual stature, not not the idea of being just a just a leader, whatever that means. This explained the statement by our sages that no prophet is allowed to innovate something in the Torah since Moses since Moses has died. Has anybody ever heard of that before? That law, they are not allowed to change the Torah in any way. Okay. Let me keep reading. This statement also explains the rule that no rabbinical assembly may invalidate a decree by another such rabbinical assembly, which had preceded it, unless it could be proven to be more competent and considered of a greater number than the rabbinical assembly who had originated said decree. So that you basically need to have like real proof and also real backing to your statement, especially if it's a rabbinical, what they mean here is like a bait dean, right? A, a group of rabbis who have come together, not the rabbinical assembly of the conservative movement. Um, they're definitely not talking about the conservative movement here. <laughs> um, but just the idea that in order to go against another bait dean, you have to have real reason to do so. Um, but I want to focus actually on the first part, which is that you cannot... You can't change something. They use the word innovate, which I think is very interesting because they're not talking about erasing. They're talking about modifying, right? About being creative, about changing something so that it's more meaningful. Um, and you're not allowed to do that since Moshe died. So I brought you the Gemara that it's referencing here, Shabbat 104. And it says here, again, I'm just going to read in the English for time's sake. The Gemara rejects this. And is that reasonable? So rejects that statement. Isn't it written? These are the commandments that the Lord commanded Moshe to tell the children of Israel at Mount Sinai. That's from Leviticus. It's from a few chapters back. The word these underscores that a prophet is not permitted to introduce any new element related to the Torah and its mitzvot from here on. So what's the problem with this in today's day at Temple Betham as conservative Jews? All the time, right? We as conservative Jews are, and I would even argue modern Orthodox Jews and definitely Reformed Jews are innovating Torah all the time, right? Right, right. The Haredim are not, right? The Haredim are not, are, 
I mean, they're interpreting for sure, but they're not innovating. I don't think the word innovating has ever been in the same sentence as Haredim. But, but the but the idea of the idea of because the whole point is that they're sticking to an old tradition. So there's it's it is the antithesis of innovation. That's not to say it's bad, just not innovative. But for us to read this, it's not a tisk tisk. It's just very interesting. So how do we define then what we're doing? If we know, if we are a lawful denomination of Judaism, and if most denominations of Judaism are innovative, then how are we getting around this? How are we getting around this idea that because there has never been a leader <laughs> since Moshe, that we were not supposed to then touch anything that Moshe did because then we would assume that we are better than Moshe, right? We're, we're putting ourselves in those shoes that make us better than, than this leader who our Torah is telling us there, there will never be, there was never another leader like him. So how do we get around this, do you think? I don't actually have an answer. I'm just curious what you think. I see like half hands, yeah. <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Sure. So I don't think that the Gemara is innovating, right? The Gemara is definitely in, interpreting and is teaching based off of the Mishnah, which then comes also from the Torah, if we're going backwards. And then from the, from the Gemara, from the Talmud, we then get the Shulchan Aruch, which are our laws. The innovation comes from those laws beyond, right? So the Gemara, I don't think is is necessarily innovating if we want to just translate the word innovation as being creative with something, because it's all discussion around the 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 written Torah. It's all discussion around um, what what had happened in the actual five books of Moses and the prophets. And then when we get to the Shulchan Aruch or the Mishnah Torah by Maimonides, now all of a sudden, when we read it in the 21st century, and obviously before us as well, there are innovative pieces based off of that that allow us to, for example, be teaching here with a microphone with a computer in front of me, <laughs> right? And two years ago, we wouldn't have done that at Temple Betham. So the innovation is happening all the time, not just, not just in a book. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Sure. 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 Right. So so maybe we've maybe we've figured out a survival mechanism that we have to innovate to make sure that the things that we are learning, even from the Torah or the oral Torah, that we are we are permeating them into our lives in such a way that we are still holding fast to them but we are also making sure that they are relevant to the lives that we are living and the lives that we want to perpetuate with a real um, rootedness in, in the tradition. Yeah, that's great. Marshall, you had a hand up. Yeah, right. Beautiful. So just the general idea that, that it's not it's not changing something, but we're making it new for ourselves, which allows it to be something that we can then connect to in a way that we wouldn't be able to connect to it if we were just doing it the way that it was written hundreds or thousands of years. Right, right. Yeah, right. Sure. Sure. Beautiful. So that we can find ways to make something feel new, be new, ritually experience it in a new way um, 
for us to be able to connect to it. I think that's a, a beautiful interpretation. And I would argue as a conservative rabbi that that is why conservative Judaism feels like we can do what we are doing in terms of um, understanding halakha in such a way that it works for our 21st century um, lives and minds. Okay, I wanna skip to Rabbeinu Bachia. Yeah, yeah. And I think that there probably is a difference between ignoring things that would be destructive <laughs> and innovating things that would allow us to be more connected to them. You're totally right. There are many things in the Torah that were passed down that then got to the Gemara or then got to the Shulchan Aruch, where our rabbis very purposefully made it super, super, super hard to adhere to those laws because they knew that we wanted to do away with them. So, but they didn't, they didn't say, well, we're just going to get rid of it. They said, here are all the stipulations you would need to quote follow in order for that to come about. And that's how we don't do it. But yeah, you're, you're totally right. Okay. So Rabbeinu Bachia um, is going to talk now about the end of the last verse of Torah. So it's a little bit of a change in subject here. Um, but um, I think I have time to do the whole thing. Let's, let's, this is already cut down from what it actually is. So let's see if we can get through it. Um, okay, I'm going to start it at that time. At that, at that time, God had explained these awesome spectacles as designed to strengthen the people's awe of God and to help them not to trespass, right? So this is the revelation piece here. Moses enumerates events in chronological order. God's miracles had first been aimed at Pharaoh and subsequently at the Jewish people. So this is where we're talking about the Moftim and the Otot, right? That the way in which God was close to Moshe was through these miracles um, that, that what Rabbi Nubachi is saying, they were first aimed at Pharaoh, but then they turned towards ways of building the Jewish people. The words Asher Asa must be understood as he demonstrated seeing that he being probably God here, um, that Moses does not make miracles, but God does. The reason that the Torah here does not write matters in the same order as did Isaiah, for example, is due to the respective level of the prophetic powers of the prophet involved. Moses, as opposed to Isaiah, had been privileged, and by the way, all other prophets, had been privileged to see what are called clear, unblurred visions. So Moshe, because he had that panim el panim, that face-to-face -face interaction with God, he had these visions that did not need to go through anything else, right? Think about the way in which Elijah speaks or interacts with God or Isaiah or Jeremiah or any of those prophets. It's always through something else or through a voice of something else, right? It's, it's, not, it's not a clear vision straight from God with God in your, in your face. Thus it was that the Torah wrote of him, Le'ene kol Israel. he demonstrated everything he wanted to convey to the eyes of Israel, to their most superior means of perception in the clearest, in the clearest possible manner. God was able to convey the meaning of the emanations to the people. I believe, Rabbi Nubachia believes, that this is also the meaning of, a, a, okay, we're just going to skip that. Forget, forget that I even read that sentence. Okay, here I'm in the bold. You have to appreciate that seeing that both the Torah and the concept of the Jewish people preceded the creation of the universe. Okay, let me read that again. Both the Torah and the concept of the Jewish people preceded the creation of the universe. So the creation of the universe happened, according to Rabbeinu Bachia, 
after the Torah and the idea of the Jewish people was already established. Okay. The Torah commenced with the word Breshit and concluded with the word Yisrael. So what Rabbeinu Bachia is drashing here is that because it starts with the word Breshit and it ends with the word Yisrael, that we're supposed to understand that Torah and the Jewish people came before Breshit, because the way that we're going to read it is that there was this creation of Israel and then Breshit, right? On Simchat Torah, that's what we do. We go straight from the end right into the beginning. And if you weren't, if you weren't to know that we're going from one side of the Torah to the other, you might think, oh, the creation of the people of Israel, and then there was creation of the world, right? It's, it's not the way that we typically think about our Torah, because we, we typically quote, start with the creation story, but Rabbeinu Bache is saying that, that that is how, that is how he's understanding this for this particular drash. This Torah, which Moshe presented to the entire people of Israel is a true Torah, something which is eternal in its function as a salvation for the Jewish people, because it came before creation, right? It was, it's true in, in true meaning, um, uh, authentic, right? Not meaning factual, but meaning that it is authentic because it, it came even before creation, right? It came before, before we were even uh, established as, uh, as anything. It commenced with the letter bet, right? Bereshit starts with the letter bet and ends with the letter lamed. Yisrael ends with the letter lamed. You've probably all heard some of these drashot that are about to come up which represent between them the 32 paths of wisdom contained in the Torah. If you read these two letters from back to front, Lamed Tibet, you have the allusion to the fact that sooner or later, the world as we know is subject to unraveling, to returning to the state it was in at its beginning. So if you read from Yisrael, then to Breshit, a few words later, you get the words Tohu Vavohu, right? So the world unravels. It goes from being very established. We have laws, we know what we're supposed to do. And then all of a sudden it's unraveled. That's all happening on Tuesday. You can come here it happen. The, yeah. the word lev, heart, is what we get when reading the last letter of the Torah, first followed by the first letter of the Torah. You've probably heard that before. Lots of rabbis like to drosh on that. Heart is symbolic of ratzon, of will. The will of God is the key to the continued existence of any phenomenon. The last letter in the Torah, the letter Lamed, is the tallest of the letters in the Aleph Bet, and it points in the direction of the root of the highest tree, the one from which all existence, which we are to witness, emanates, and which will also be the one causing it to terminate when the Creator so desires. Okay, so I'm not going to get into that little midrash right there, but you're seeing how these letters that are connected because of the way that we read the Torah. We go from Israel straight into Breshit, so that Lamed and Bet are very closely connected, are making us think almost backwards about what it means to be a people and then going into this creation story where not only are we not a people, but we are in complete disarray and we're not even created, right? We're dust of the earth. So the first line of the creation story and of our Torah is Breshit bara Elohim et Hashemayim ve'et Ha'aretz. In beginningness, right? In, in what it means to begin something, created God 
the, the, the heavens and the earth. There is nothing there about human beings. There's nothing there about a nation. There's nothing there about unity. It's actually completely divided, not about people at all, and is obviously going to start our creation story, which we know goes on from there. So first of all, does anybody have any comments on this? And then I'll, I'll kind of I'll wrap up the idea here. Okay. So what I wanted you to be able to think about is that in similar to how we think about the word matzah, right? You've probably also heard this, Drash, that there's a teeny tiny second of time that matzah goes from matzah to chametz, right? If it's any longer than 18 minutes, it becomes chametz. And that's why there's a little teeny tiny gap in the hay, right, of matzah, because you have only a teeny tiny little bit of time before it becomes something completely different. That's, that's how we're supposed to read our Torah. We're supposed to read it with not even a second of difference in between when we were a people and when we began. Because we're supposed to recognize that the two are actually really connected. We have to be very connected to our beginning story for us to imagine how we got to be a people and vice versa. We have to know the beginning story to understand how important it was that then we became a people. So I put the heart of our matter as the title because of Lev and the fact that the whole Torah is then encompassed in this word Lev. But I hope that you're also able to take this to heart as you, as you hear the Torah start again on Tuesday, that you're able to think about what are those, what are those split seconds that allow us to recognize being a people to our creation and vice versa and what are the fragments that that could have gone wrong or had to go right in our torah for all of this to happen such that we could be a people or such that that creation could happen so just food food for thought i hope that it was um interesting and something that you will be able to take with you in all of the spaces where you're not hearing Vezot HaBracha <laughs> in the next few days. Um, but if you would like to hear Vezot HaBracha, again, you can come next Shabbat afternoon, and then you will be able to, uh, to hear it on Simcha Torah as well on Tuesday. You have been listening to another in our series of podcasts from Temple Beth Am, a dynamic center for conservative Judaism in Los Angeles. If you enjoy these podcasts, we invite you to write a review on the Apple Podcast site or wherever you get your podcasts. For more information about Temple Beth Am Los Angeles, go to tbala.org.